can you honor the past, but also sort of step away from like this sort of recurring trauma and intergenerational trauma that follows follows people around, right? How can you actually just have a clean break from that? It's in reality, it's not so clear cut, and and so um, how we continue to process that in the future is. It's ongoing, right? I mean, at the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago, people are still debating the tomahawk chop. And here's the complexity. I'm not, I mean, I don't know. I'm not saying that Patrick Mahomes is responsible for the tomahawk chop or, or anything like that, right? I mean, it's an amazing player. Like, of course you can appreciate the play of someone like Patrick Mahomes at the same time that you're like, yeah, the tomahawk chop's problematic. You just heard the voice of Blake Hausman author of a book entitled Riding the Trail of Tears, which is a satirical and surrealistic revisitation of a dark chapter in American history. Blake and I talked about indigenous science fiction, his inspiration for revisiting the Trail of Tears in his fiction writing, and, of course, Patrick Mahomes and the Tomahawk Chop. don't know us by now we are the earth to humans team hannah mulvaney matt podolsky and myself serena simons um we're the ones that bring you those really cool interesting stories that you hear every other week um and i think we find pretty interesting unique interviews um and i think this one is no exception and i think these are the exact kinds of conversations that we really try to have on the show um, so Matt, I wondered if you could introduce our episode on uh, Blake Hausman. I'm super excited about this interview. Um, you know, we kind of started off by talking about the sort of genre that Blake writes in, um, which is hard to define, right? It's sort of like in- indigenous science fiction, but there's a lot of it, it, it almost strays into the realm of like magical realism. We talked a lot about like science fiction as a genre, like what that means and, and you know, um, how indigenous science fiction is kind of like flipping the script, right? Because a lot of like the sort of traditional stories that we think of when we think of science fiction um, are rooted in colonialism. So it was just, it, it was super fascinating to like hear about his approach uh, to storytelling and how he is like using that approach to kind of like poke holes in some of those like older ideas about like what science fiction should be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously we kind of dove into like his story that he told in, in the book, Riding the Trail of Tears, which is the focus of the episode. And uh, the premise of that book is it takes place in the not too distant future where there is a virtual reality, like a hyper-realistic virtual reality trail of tears that tourists pay to enter. So he's imagining a world where tourists 
okay to experience the trauma of the Trail of Tears, which is like so bizarre and fascinating. And, you know, the whole story takes place over the course of one day in the ride um, where things don't go as planned. (laughs) And it gets real weird real fast um, in a good way. So that book's called Riding the Trail of Tears by Blake Houseman. Uh, Like I said, super, super excited about this episode. These are the kinds of conversations that I think make Earth to Humans really unique. Thanks for having me here. My name is Blake Hausman. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and I live in Portland, Oregon with my family. I um, guess I, I was born in Michigan, though we moved to the Southeast when I was a little kid and did a lot of my growing up in North Carolina and Georgia. Also lived in South Carolina for a bit too. Um, my father's family or from New York area, the Jewish folks that immigrated to New York around the turn of the 20th century, and that's where my last name comes from, and you know, I look a lot like my dad. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I met my spouse working at um, my uncle's bagel store in, in, in New York in the Hudson Valley um, back in the late 20th century, you know, um, uh, and we've been living on the West Coast for a while. My, my mother's family, or yeah, you know, we're Cherokee Nation, um, roots in Oklahoma. Uh, my mom and dad met in Michigan. That's that's where I was born. And um, yeah, I, I guess uh, I've always been drawn towards stories, towards like narrative, you know. Um, and I, I've always found. I mean, my mom used to tell me the story how when I was like. I think we were living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. I was like two or three years old. And I just like, I guess I used to get on a tricycle and just like ride up the hill in this place where we lived. And I would go talk to this um, elderly woman and just listen to her tell me stories. And one day I just went up the hill and didn't come back for a while. My mom was really nervous and, you know, was um, looking for me. And I guess I was just listening to, I was listening to somebody's grandma tell me stories and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think about that and I think about, wow, I guess I've always been really interested in listening to stories from folks who have seen a lot and heard a lot. And and um, I've always really been drawn towards towards real stories, you know, stories that are stories that tell a certain kind of truth that may not always be evident or may not always be obvious, may not always be part of the dominant narrative. Um, but I've also long been drawn towards stories that are you could file under SF, right? Sci-fi, speculative fiction, or just far out, <laughs> far out stories. <laughs> and sometimes in the, um, yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of, and there's a lot of traditional indigenous stories that are pretty far out, you know? Um, and I, I guess it's maybe not surprising that I've long been drawn towards some of those. Um, anyways, when I got to college as a younger person, I, I, um, I, th- I thought I wanted to be a journalist. I was studying journalism and just you know, kind of realized that what I really wanted to do was make more imaginative stories and, and, and maybe study the history of narrative art a little more. And so wound up, yeah, shifting my focus to studying English. And, you know, I've been an English professor for <laughs> many decades now. <laughs> um, uh, I, I also... Um, 
you know, certainly inspired by, you know, by our family and yeah, by other other folks in my immediate family, you know, too, um, drawn towards indigenous studies, Native American studies. So, you know, um, we've been living on the West Coast, my family, uh, my spouse and, and, and my kids, we've been living on the West Coast for a while. Um, live some in Washington State, live some in the Bay Area. We've been here in the Portland area for over 10 years now. I guess this is the longest time I've ever lived anywhere. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I teach I teach English and Native American studies at Portland Community College and, and also at Oregon State University. And um, I'm working on my second novel right now. My first novel, Riding the Trail of Tears, came out in 2011. So it's going to turn 12 this year. Um, I'm not the kind of author who produces a book a year. I marvel at people like Stephen Graham Jones or Louise Erdrich, who not only do they make amazing books, but they can produce like a book a year or every two years. And, 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 uh, for me, it's like, you know, if I can produce a few during my life, I'll be happy. So I'm, I'm work, working on my second novel now. I'm, I'm pretty close to being done with it. Uh, reconstructed it several times and a lot of it goes back to point of view I think I'm obsessed with point of view and um, playing with the the ways that a story takes shape on the page and how that relates to kind of narrative consciousness I, I guess I just uh, really appreciate the ways that well the the Cherokee writer Thomas King you know and he's got this book called the truth about stories and it has this refrain the truth about stories is that's all we are <laughs> you know it's turtles all the way down he, um turtles upon turtles upon turtles and and uh this idea that in a lot of ways you know um the stories that we carry with us are who we are you know and they help us carve a path for the future they help us make sense of ourselves in the present and um you know, to quote another Cherokee author, Daniel Heath Justice, who, when he talks about uh, indigenous speculative fiction or indigenous futurism, will often talk about the need to imagine otherwise, right? Imagine otherwise. And this idea that that narrative, especially fictional narrative, maybe speculative or far out narrative, right, can give you a way to maybe see things differently, to imagine otherwise. Uh, to imagine that another sort of future is possible or to sort of rethink how how are we moving along this path that we're on? How can we maybe re-see ourselves differently or re-see different possibilities that it's not just the sort of dominant narratives that we've inherited, but we can maybe hold up a mirror to some of those, challenge those, imagine otherwise, imagine other possibilities or potentials. And so I guess I've always sort of been drawn towards the possibility and the potential for fictional narrative to work that way, you know. A couple times you've mentioned, um, you know, connections between speculative fiction and indigenous stories. Mm. And I mean, I'm a huge fan of speculative fiction, science fiction, right? But most people probably, when they hear that term, like you think about this very like Western science version of like science fiction right like you're sort of isaac asimov right where it's all about hard science space travel and that's what science fiction is and like in reality the genre is so much more vast and broad but like i wonder if you can educate us on those connections well first i just think there's a there's a range of sf of speculative fiction of of you know sci-fi and there's I, I think there's you know quite a continuum from sort of like hard science fiction where everything 
is very technical and you could maybe tell the person who wrote it has like a degree in robotics or something or a degree in engineering and i like that stuff a lot you know I, i'm fascinated by that stuff honestly when i was younger i was fascinated by the techno babble in star trek i was like i want to know about the techno babble um but but also uh, you know there's this continuum and one could say the difference between sci-fi and fantasy is that sci-fi things magical things or or things that are um surreal or you know out of the ordinary realm of daily experience happen because of science and technology whereas in fantasy it happens because of magic some sort of supernatural power and just where is science and technology operating along those lines um that's a question that i find pretty interesting and for me as a reader you know i i like all kinds for me as a writer i tend towards the more surrealist <laughs> elements of it like i like science fiction I like enter, entering this world where something about things that humans make, <laughs> that humans do, um, is part of what creates the surreal experience, is part of what pushes things into this space where stuff gets pretty far out, rather than it's sort of a magical experience. And I, I certainly don't want to diss that. I, I, I love reading fantasy stuff, and there's a lot of authors. I could list some authors of indigenous fantasy who I think are brilliant. Darcy Little Badger is this Lippin Apache author who's got a couple books out. She's amazing. Um, but for for me, I do think I tend towards, you know, surrealism that's built around human input in terms of science and technology, but not all the way to the sort of hard science end of things. And anyways, I... I I think it's important to just sort of step back and note that, yeah, what we often think of as science fiction, and at least in this sort of Euro-Western context, is pretty heavily colonialist, right? Um, colonization is often something that's taken for granted as just how humans are supposed to operate. We're going to colonize this other planet we're going to colonize this moon maybe there's people there maybe there's not right but like you colonize things that's what you do and and uh and there's this sort of dominant narrative of settler colonialism often um in in the anglophone tradition that kind of just goes unchecked and it helps to normalize and make the settler colonial society that we live in seem natural, right? And this is how it's supposed to be. It's always like this. It's always been like this. It's inevitably going to be like this. And that's where I find like modern contemporary indigenous SF to be really powerful because I think it actually says, well, wait a second, it doesn't have to be that way. That's actually not necessarily normal or natural. Uh, that's not inevitable. <laughs> it doesn't have to be that way. There are other ways to do things. Um, but it's kind of tricky, like, again, if you think of a lot of the dominant sort of sci-fi narratives, um, ones that have a lot of cultural clout are very recognizable, whether that's Star Wars or The Handmaid's Tale or The Hunger Games, right? Uh, narratives that have gotten really successful in, you know, movies, television series um, that millions and millions of people have seen. If it's set in the future, at least on planet Earth, a lot of times the the assumption of indigenous erasure is just taken as as given right indigenous people indigenous cultures indigenous governance indigenous solutions right um not, not just spirituality but like solutions you know for 
environmental issues, right, and, and, and issues that relate to how we construct our societies and how we relate to each other are just erased. And it's just assumed that, well, indigenous people aren't here. And that's natural. That's inevitable. Um, that's actually not natural. It's not inevitable. We weren't erased. We survived the apocalypse, <laughs> right? So, so, so often post-apocalyptic fiction is presented as if it's something that's about to happen, right? Or it's something that could happen way off in the future, right? Like The Hunger Games, Handmaid's Tale, 1984, of course, the year, right? But still, the idea that that's coming in the future. There's going to be a cataclysmic series of events. I'm watching This Is Us on HBO right now, right? And, and it's, it, it certainly follows along those, that line where there's something coming in the future where everything's going to change very fast and what results is going to be almost unrecognizable. I mean, it'll still be the same planet, but like everything's going to change remarkably and it will be very different than what we're used to. And I think it's worth sort of stepping back and going, well, actually from an indigenous perspective, that's already happened. Right. And, and here we are, we survived the apocalypse. And um, actually one could argue that all indigenous, all native American writing uh, in the 21st century is post-apocalyptic, whether it's a very realistic narrative like Tommy Orange's book, There, There, or whether it's something like Cherie Dimeline's um, The Marrow Thieves <laughs> or Empire of Wild, that these are, you know, very different in terms of a continuum of realism, but they all, they all enter a space where indigenous people are present, indigenous people survived what happened, and we're actually part of the future. So I, I guess to go back to it, I really appreciate sci-fi or speculative fiction that recognizes indigenous people, indigenous communities, indigenous solutions <laughs> in that future. And um, unfortunately, because I think the settler colonial erasure of indigenous folk is just so normalized that this is often something that's just taken as given um, in maybe the mainstream publishing industry. And, and, and yet, I think you can kind of see it happening, right? Like recently, there was an indigenous predator movie, right? Prey <laughs> was on Hulu, came out on Hulu last year. And for me, that really seemed like this sort of turning point moment, right? Where it's like, whoa, here's this movie, this, this, I mean, it's, it's predator, right? It's got all the tropes of a typical predator movie. There's a lot of ultraviolence, but it's like, hey, you know, there's some, there's some stuff that relates to the solution that's actually pretty deeply rooted. And it, it sees indigenous people in the past, and in so doing, it sees indigenous people in the future. It sees us as part of the future. And I think that's a pretty radically awesome thing. I mean, just the idea, indigenous futurism, um, I think that's a term that's been in circulation for maybe about 20 years now. It's a professor here in Portland, Grace Dillon, who's uh, uh, generally seen as kind of coining the term. I mean, that, that term is... I think it's beautiful. I think it's just an awesome concept because it acknowledges that there is an indigenous future, right? And um, I think that's something that maybe in the 19th century, you know, a lot of our ancestors were like, hey, we're, we're worried. They were legitimately worried that there might not be an indigenous future. Um, but here we are. <laughs> we're in the indigenous future now. And, and, and the more sort of futurist narratives I think that we have, um, the more we continue to, to build up this sort of what I think is a really exciting family of, 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 of narrative, um, the more that people are going to continue to see and recognize and imagine 
indigenous presence in the future as well. So, so I want to dive into your book. Where did the idea for writing the Trail of Tears come from? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, I mean, on on some levels, I think it came from thinking about the ways or just recognizing the ways that uh, sort of cultural appropriation combined with sort of exploiting native suffering for like commercial gain uh, is often pretty normalized. It, in some ways, it's just sort of status quo. Um, or it, and I mean, I mean, I guess it still is. <laughs> Maybe 20 years ago when I, the idea for this book was sort of first developing um maybe even more so then uh, but I, I mean i think it's still i think we're still sort of engulfed by it to some degree though i'd, I'd like to believe that the needle has moved a little bit in the last 20 years i, I think it has but th there's there's definitely this pattern of sort of um exploiting native suffering in order to sell some kind of story uh, a, a story that ultimately reduces the sort of capacity for like a full range of humanity, right? Where native people are often sort of seen as subhuman, like not really people. And the emphasis is on the suffering and the tragedy. And that's very real. Like what our ancestors experienced and the things we experience every day, the microaggressions, that's all real. Of course it is. But yet at, at the same time, like if you reduce a people's ability to laugh, you reduce their humanity, you know, if, if you, um, so, so there was, a, I, I wanted to approach this stuff from a satirical perspective, right? Um, I wanted to, uh, and I've, I, I'm a big fan of satire as well. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I could list a lot of satirical narratives, right, that really push some limits that are kind of risky. You know, I, I, I think about, um, for instance, Spike Lee's film Bamboozled, right, was for, for, for me, I, I know that's a film that a lot of people might look at it and think, oh, this is like Spike Lee's worst film ever. I, it's actually one of my favorites. I think it's this amazing work of art. And, and for, for me was sort of, um, it, it, it was an example that something like this story was possible. But but I guess ultimately I, I started thinking about this as, you know, really thinking about over-commercialization of certain sort of new agey appropriation of native culture and was thinking about how to set something like that in, in the Western U.S., maybe in like, I don't know, Sedona or Santa Fe or something like that or at, at, on a resort like outside of Seattle or something like that. But like ultimately, as I was starting to try to construct that narrative, I was just like, you know, it's a tricky thing to try to sort of cross over some of those lines and to write about the experiences of folks from other Native nations. And for me to try to sort of take those experiences, even if I'm living here on the West Coast, right, that those aren't, you know, my traditions, those aren't my people's stories. And that, you know, as someone who's Cherokee and has grown up with the experience of being Cherokee, stories about Cherokee culture, my family within the larger story of the Cherokee Nation, um, and having lived in North Carolina and Georgia for a while when I was growing up, too, and, and seeing the ways that that our presence, I mean, we were there forever, or, okay, not forever, but for a, a long, long time, right, um, thinking about our history there and how it was just erased in, in, in sort of the public-facing information that you see, 
you know, when you go to a, a state park in Georgia, for instance, right? Um, uh, or, or when you're in parts of North Carolina or Tennessee. Um, and it's sort of been systematically erased, except for this idea that, oh, well, in the past, back then, but then there was this inevitable wave of settler colonialism that just erased everything and the native people just went away. Which, again, that's a problematic narrative. And I wanted to challenge that. And I thought, you know, I actually feel pretty comfortable <laughs> stepping into this kind of risky narrative construct by going through my own people's stories. And that it, for a first novel, I had to reckon with like the, the relatively young, but also kind of ancient tradition of the native novel, as well as the canon of Cherokee narrative. And that I, for me to figure out what is it for me to be, you know, a Cherokee author in the 21st century was that I needed to engage us as a Cherokee story. I needed to have a Cherokee protagonist. It needed to be set in North Georgia and, um, and it needed to involve North Georgia and Western North Carolina. And, and, the story had to be set there and then you know as as i'm working on this in the um early years of of the um, the first decade of the 21st century and the phrase homeland security starts to take on i mean you hear it all the time now it's sort of taken as a given my kids have grown up in a world where there's always been a department of homeland security in the united states but it was a new term in terms of the common public discourse at the time. And I was like, all right, we're going to take this idea of homeland security. We're going to take this idea of uh, commercial um, exploitation of native suffering for, you know, for economic gain. And we're going to take this dominant narrative of the Cherokee removal and we're going to, we're going to remix it. We're going to super dub it. We're going to have some fun with it. It's going to be risky. It's probably going to, push a lot of people's buttons, it's probably going to ruffle a lot of feathers and raise a lot of questions. And, and I'm okay with that <laughs> because I wanted to hold up a mirror to, to some of these contradictions and complexities, you know, of the world around us. And, um, you know, Hey, maybe, maybe what, what if the end of the, of the removal isn't, um, isn't the signing of the, you know, the, the post-removal Cherokee constitution in 1839. What if it keeps going? Like, what if it never really ends? What if it's a, a, a young woman being interrogated after a really bad day at work and there's the tomahawk chop on the television with the Atlanta Braves game in the background? I mean, that that's, you know, and, and that's kind of what it's like in the 21st century, right? Like, that's that's how you in, in see these things. That's how they sort of follow you around. And um, to to sort of have some fun with that, to poke some fun at that, and, um, you know, what was it that, what was it that Swift said, Jonathan Swift, that satire could be a, could be a corrective of human vice and folly. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that Swift is the primary inspiration for this by any means. I'm <laughs> pretty critical of some of his stuff, but I took that idea, like this idea that you hold up that mirror, you can illustrate certain, certain folly, right? You can illustrate certain patterns that you can reflect back maybe in, in a way that caused people to question. And again, going back to that idea of imagining otherwise, the more you can question, maybe the more you can imagine otherwise. So I guess that's where, I guess that's kind of some of the inspiration for this book, um, where it came from. And yeah, some of the models to demonstrate it was possible. I also think there was a film that came out in the late 90s called Life is Beautiful, right? A take on the 
on on um, on the Holocaust in Europe. Um, that that was a comedy, right? And it's like, okay, this is hallowed ground, right? You're not supposed to make jokes about it, and yet. Again, like I remember watching that film and thinking about it. the more that you reduce the people's ability to laugh, it's like the more you reduce their humanity. And 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 um, so I, I did get some questions about that, you know. And I, th- I think I still do. Like, what's the point in approaching this story of the Cherokee removal of the Trail of Tears, right, from a satirical perspective, or approaching it in ways that emphasize comedy or try to balance the tragedy with comedy and yeah, I just go back to that. It's like we have to be able to laugh at the absurdities of how some of, of the resonance of that. And like, there it is, the styrofoam tomahawks that people do in the tomahawk chop. I mean, it's it's <laughs> that's part of the resonance of it. And it's like, if we just get upset about it, you know, then we might not be able to change it. But I think if we can laugh at it, ridicule it, reduce that the, the potency of that maybe by laughing at it, maybe we can start to imagine otherwise. Maybe we can continue to push that needle a little. So I don't know if the book is going to eliminate the tomahawk chop or make the Jeep Cherokee go away. Like, you know, but but again, just holding up a mirror and, 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 and having some fun with it. And maybe that can change the way that some of us uh, see ourselves in relation to the waters that we're swimming in. You know, I wonder if you can give us just a summary of the book, right? Like if you're if you were like pitching it to somebody like without any spoilers, because, you know, I hope that some of the folks who are listening to this are going to want to pick up the book. But how would you pitch it to someone? It's set in North Georgia, um, outside of Athens, Georgia. And we the protagonist is a is a Cherokee woman who works at this place that's basically a, a tourist compound theme park essentially a virtual reality theme park where you can go ride the trail of tears as a customer you can ride the virtual reality trail of tears in the course of two or three hours right the the whole year-long um removal is sort of compressed into this you know movie length virtual reality experience and uh, our our protagonist is one of the tour guides that works there Uh, she's not only a tour guide she's kind of like the founding tour guide she was involved in producing some of the narrative that the people who work there are expected to recite uh, she helped to she was like the cultural consultant uh re- representing all cherokee people you know she was kind of this um tokenized cultural consultant uh who participated in the process of writing this um the programs writing writing the dialogue so there's this idea of there being standardized dialogue that sort of comes from her but also comes from somewhere else too and uh yeah she really needs a vacation and (laughs) on on the day that we zone in on right i guess it really covers the course of two days in her life um stuff goes bad (laughs) there's 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 issues with the system things malfunction um there's stuff that goes wrong and uh, she gets put in a tight spot and it gets pretty absurd. Um, Absurd, surreal reconstruction, uh, super dubbed version of the, the Cherokee removal story in the context of a virtual reality theme park where customers come to ride the trail of tears and our protagonist is trying to lead them through the journey. I just have to express how much I love this book. Like I didn't have much in the way of expectations because I didn't like I had no knowledge of it. Uh, but from the moment I started reading it, I was sucked in and I couldn't 
I mean, I read it in a day and a half. So I'm a, I'm a fan. But like you talked a lot about your your inspiration and like the ideas that led to the formulation of this story and also just some of the messaging goals that you had, right? One of the things we haven't touched on, which I'm curious about, is like even with all of the other things that are going on and the bizarreness of like the virtual reality world, you're still teaching people about what the Trail of Tears might have been like, right? In like a different way than just a dry historical account. It's like you feel it because the characters are feeling it. And it's like it's like a, you're you're experiencing a character from that's recognizable from like a modern world, right? Somebody who could be your neighbor put in this situation. It's not just something that happened in the past anymore, right? It's like, how would a modern human put in that situation? How would they react to it? You know, and to see how the characters react is so fascinating. But like you also learn about what it may have actually been like, like the trauma, Cherokee history and the Trail of Tears. It's like a part of our historical canon. And you're we're taught about that to some very tiny degree from a very specific perspective in school. At least some kids maybe are. But like, I think a lot of the people that pick up your book are like learning about what this what the Trail of Tears was really like, maybe for the first time. Yeah, I really appreciate the way that that you put that, Matt. I, I I think that's I think that's awesome, because on on one level, like like you're saying, yeah, it's a really significant part of the history of the United States, right? Um, the ways that the Cherokee Nation resisted removal and actually won the case in the Supreme Court, but then were removed anyways, right? I mean, it, it, it's that part is often something that may be included. Maybe that's a paragraph in people's history books, you know, it, and, and, and unfortunately, very often, that aspect of the Cherokee removal becomes like the thing about Native American history that like so many people learn about like well we learned about the Cherokee Trail of Tears and, and that was it that was all we learned about we learned this like little little bit about it and there's like you know over 500 federally recognized tribes right indigenous history is really really diverse and and um, and there's no way that Cherokee history in and of itself let alone just the removal can represent all of it right so so it, it it's interesting like that in that it's the the trail of tears the removal is pretty recognizable as a part of american history but like what about it right do do people really know <laughs> and and um and, and and so i i was definitely thinking about all those things right um in in terms of one i think there's often this sort of impulse for people to genuinely want to know more about what happened like okay i heard i know a little bit about this want to know more i want to know more about what really happened right and at the same time it's like so often that can be presented and contextualized in this way as if this is part of the past that gets cut off right indigenous and this assumption of indigenous erasure this sort of colonialist process of erasing the indigenous present and and as well as the indigenous future, right? And and thinking it's all past tense. We're going to talk about this all in the past tense. And so for me, this is the question. And again, why I love just the idea of futurism is that let's think of this in the present tense. Let's think of this in the future tense, right? What is the resonance of this history 
in the present and in the future because that's how i mean that's how we experience it right so so um at least that's how we experience the resonance of it I, I think that's how I've experienced it. You know, I think that's how a lot of folks experience it. And there's often this gap, I think, between maybe a sort of impulse to think, well, I want to know more about what happened in the past. I want to, I want to ex- expound on that one paragraph in my history book or whatever, you know, and, and maybe there's a gap between that and maybe how folks actually experience that resonance in the present and how it, you know, shapes what we imagine is possible in the future. So I was thinking about that, absolutely. And, and hearing you put it that way is just, it's just awesome. I was definitely trying to, to tell that story, to tell the real story and sort of channel it through our protagonist and our protagonist's experience and sort of like levels of irony, levels of contradiction, levels of dramatic irony, you know, that our protagonist is seeing, but also that our protagonist is experiencing and um, thinking about how this actually does kind of reflect a contemporary condition of irony and contradiction. And, and that if you try to sort of flatten that, you know, history, that sense of, well, what really happened into, well, here's what it was. And I think you, you lose some of that sense of complexity, some of that dimension of how it continues to impact the present. And I guess, so, so that's certainly one thing that I was thinking about. Um, well, I guess a whole constellation of things that I was thinking about when, when, when building the book in, in, in the shape that it came out. But another thing I was thinking about too, um, was this question of, well, what, what can you expect? You know, to go back to what you were saying about like what, what do you expect? What do you assume that readers will know, or that viewers or listeners, that audiences will know, or, or be able to bring with them, and how that can often be a sort of pitfall that people have that 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 people producing a story can can sort of fall into is assuming that audiences know certain things already. So I was trying to sort of be attuned to that, to give people enough to sort of follow along. But also it's this tricky thing too, where it's like there was a really intentional move to not have a glossary of like Cherokee culture in the back of the book, right? And, and, and I remember when the book first came out and was living in the Bay Area at the time and there's a Cherokee community there and we got together and we had reading and stuff. And um, one of the folks there was like, hey, did you ever think of putting a glossary in the book so that people who maybe aren't as familiar with like all sorts of stuff about Cherokee culture are going to be able to sort of follow along or catch all these references? Because I caught some references to things that I'm not sure everyone's going to catch. And I was like, you know, I was thinking about that. Like, didn't want to. I didn't want there to be a glossary because, because I guess I wanted that to be something where it's like, well, I'm not sure it's the job of this book to sort of reveal everything about Cherokee culture. And just, just the same way that you could read, like, I don't know, you could read a, a, a writer from the European or the Western canon, and they're making references to all sorts of European history, you know, or, or um, Western history to Christian history often, and we're just sort of expected to catch it, right? And to some degree, I guess there's the question, well, what's our job as members of the audience, you know, in terms of figuring some of that stuff out? Or if you come with a good deal of context already, 
maybe you feel like, oh, cool, I caught that, you know, uh, I, I caught that reference and that can send you to a place that seems validating or gratifying. So like, there's, there's also like, I, I think levels of, of symbolism and levels of reference uh, happening where there's like connections to w whether it's to a, an old school story or whether it's to a sort of contemporary manifestation of, of, a, of an old school story or a, a, a modern experience that's sort of steeped in some kind of deep history. Um, I, I try to sort of give people cues to see where that's going, but I was also like, you know, I'm not going to put footnotes here. I'm not going to have glossary or like end notes that say, and here's how this connects to this thing here, because I simultaneously wanted to try to tell a real story in the context of this totally surreal narrative. I wanted to tell the real story, but I also didn't want to, I didn't want to make it seem like, like it's okay, you know, for a, a narrative coming from the Euro Western tradition to not have a glossary, but that this story that's like seeped in all this Cherokee stuff needs to have one, right? But but rather that I just want to normalize and just see as inevitable um, <laughs> some of these references to Cherokee history and Cherokee culture. And to, and to really try to frame that not from the perspective of someone who's like lecturing to audiences that may not know, but from the perspective of, yeah, a modern 21st century protagonist who's walking through the world of, you know, styrofoam tomahawks and hybrid Honda sedans and, and stuff like that. And, 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 um, and, 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 and to think, well, there's always some more connections that could be made. And I want to give readers enough to feel like they have learned something and, and that they have made connections between historical realities in the present but also to sort of think yeah there's there's no glossary <laughs> there's a lot of references that maybe don't get spelled out entirely and i hope that that's part of the fun of of the book for certain readers so yeah i i think that's a balance that i was trying to strike to really try to think about telling that story informing people about that history um at the same time as like well, we don't need to say everything and we don't need to have footnotes that sort of graph out where everything came from, you know? And, and that to me just seemed like it was a kind of balance I was trying to strike. Uh, I, I hope it seems like we <laughs> struck that sort of balance in a good way. One of the things that was particularly interesting to me as I was reading the book was, you know, you talk a lot about like what it means to, to walk a great distance in the context of the trail of tears. Right. Uh, and, but I, I think like one of the things that's interesting for me, I mean, particularly because I'm working on a documentary project about the Appalachian trail is that your character references the Appalachian trail in connection to the trail of tears, because your character lives in the modern world where there is an Appalachian trail. And so she can make that connection between people who choose to do a long distance hike, like voluntary as recreation are going to hike 2000 miles versus, you know, and, and then in the book, it's like, it's almost like people are doing something similar, right? It's like they're choosing recreationally to experience a traumatic event that involves walking over a thousand miles. Right. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, 
I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I think th th there is a line where it's like, yeah, people prepare to walk the Appalachian Trail. And like, if, if, if you prepare for it and you think, how can I enter this in a good way? How can I make sure I've got the supplies? Like, and, and how can I mentally, physically prepare for it? Then it's doable, right? Um, uh, it, it doesn't mean, obviously, the Appalachian Trail is quite an undertaking, right? As, as you know, and, and um, requires a lot of preparation. And, and I'm, I'm sure that, I'm sure it was exhausting, right? Um, it's a different thing, though, if you're, if if the preparations are. I mean, in in a lot of ways, uh, and the, the the history proves this to be, you know, true that you know the the initial roundup and and the um, the 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 diseases, the conditions, and the, the the stockades before the march began was just they were, you know, they were horrible. It it, it was. Um, you, you know, it, it was it was a little different than say like um, I know this is sort of tricky territory comparing like you know Native American experience in the U.S. to you know a Jewish experience in in Europe during the Holocaust. But I mean that's my those are my family, so I guess I've always felt kind of comfortable going there. You know, um, if if you look at the death camps and like you know the Third Reich, um, those were designed as an endpoint, right? The the stockades for the um, roundups during uh, uh, the removals in the American South, right? Those were not designed as the, the end point. The end point was supposed to be Indian Territory, what's now Oklahoma, right? But they really were designed to eliminate some of the population along the way. They were not designed to prepare people for the journey. Um, and I, I, I guess I'd that that aspect of it seemed significant to me right because so often when you get that really compressed uh paragraph in a history book right it's like well andrew jackson said no uh we're not going to listen to the supreme court and native people were removed right but just the trauma of not only being taken out of your home you know at gunpoint or, or in some traumatic condition but actually suffering and being exposed to all these d diseases and and um just this lack of nutrition this lack of preparation for this huge journey is part of what made it so horrible um and and that's <laughs> to sort of take that and contrast it right to like you like you're saying to this sort of um tourist oriented uh experience where people do prepare for it and of course in the realm of virtual reality it's it's virtual, right? <laughs> you're you're just you're plugging into the machine, and you're going to experience it for a couple hours, and then you'll go home and have dinner, you know. And 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 it's it's it seems absurd, right? But I guess my hope is that in some of that absurdity is sort of trying to reveal maybe maybe bring it into even sharper relief. Um, to go back to what you're saying about the the reality of it, like I, I guess that's sort of my approach to the, to thinking about this and taking a satirical or, or applying a satirical framework uh, to it is, is that you could list off like all the things about the roundup and the stockades that were horrifying and dehumanizing. And those things were real. But if you sort of take those and then put them into this construct where they're contrasted to not only the preparations that someone might take to walk a 2000 mile trail like the AT or, 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 or parts of it. Right. But also just, you know, mental preparation. I'm going to go into this, 
machine <laughs> we're going to go into this compound i'm going to experience this like a like a movie and then i'm going to be done with it and go home it it, it I, I hope that in that contrast maybe it 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 seems more recognizable it seems more relatable and it maybe almost feels a little a little bit more real um and maybe maybe there's some con- irony there like by being so re- so surreal <laughs> about it um makes it maybe seem more real I don't know. I guess for for me as a reader sometimes, or for me as a viewer or a reader as an audience member, that's sometimes how it works. The more surreal some of those contrasts are, the more it can often hit home actually what it was really like. So even though I was trying to avoid this question of what was it really like, that was one of the ways that I was kind of trying to push people to get there, or, or at least to maybe bring it home themselves in terms of, wow, that's how this experience relates to stuff that I've that I experience as I walk through the world, you know, or that I'm the ways that I might prepare to do something. You talked about comparing the Holocaust to Native American genocide. It's, it's tricky. It's, it's, it's a tough comparison. It's, it's tough, right? It's tough, but you put us in this place where we can think about those things in relation to each other because one of the central characters in the book is Jewish. And so you, as a reader, you're a lot of the information that you're getting, you're getting it through the lens of this Jewish grandmother, which I loved, right? It was so like, I mean, I'm Jewish too. So like it, it made it so I could relate in a totally, like in a different way, in a very tangible way to what was going on, um, which was cool. And uh, uh, like, I, I guess I'm curious about your process. And like, I imagine that was intentional and that because you can draw on sort of like experiences and 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 characters that you actually know mm, yeah definitely i i mean the irma rosenberg character of of course my own jewish grandmother is an inspiration for some of those lines that 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 irma has um though i will say for whatever it's worth like uh you know my dad and, and my uncle were both kind of like you know you know your your grandma wouldn't have taken that mess she would she would have sorted some stuff out <laughs> you know so i thought oh that's interesting like what would it have really been like if that was my grandmother um you know, uh, <laughs> but um, but absolutely. I mean, it's 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 not it's not like I literally took my grandma and all right, I'm going to turn my grandma into this character. I mean, the, the the character had to sort of work within the narrative logic of the story, right? But um, but a, 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 absolutely, I you know you know I think one of the greatest bits of writing advice that I got from a creative writing teacher way back in the day was. All you really got to do is write what you love and put a little music in it, you know. And I continue to go back to that when I teach creative writing. That's what I one of the things I go back to with my students. And I'm pretty sure that my teacher heard it from their teacher, heard it from their teacher. I think that's ancient advice <laughs> to some degree. And and that's what I tried to go back to. So I mean, there there are. I, I wasn't necessarily just sort of planting people from my experience in into these environments and letting them go but absolutely they were inspired by it because you know in order for it to seem real enough to me like it had to be rooted in some of those real experiences and I had to think about some of the jokes that like my grandmother might say that might not entirely land the right way or 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 or, or certain things that um that I you know would really respect about um, my grandmother and and thinking about you know her memory and and um and that's also like i you know i think that a, i think that comedy 
<laughs> just doesn't do it for me when it's about making fun of people at the, for at, in order to just ridicule them. And I feel that too often that's what American comedy does. Um, and for for me, um, it was really important to create ironic, satirical, hopefully humorous situations uh, within this narrative that maybe there's this assumption that it's only going to be tragic, it's, it, it's only going to be traumatizing, but actually trying to balance the tragedy and the trauma out with humor in order for me to do that in a way that had dimension, right? And it wasn't just making fun of people. I had to try to build it around elements of real life that in my experience are the things of life, right? The, um, yeah, and it's messy and it's full of contradictions, but it's also, it's a beautiful thing. And so, yeah, I, I, I hope that I, I hope that in the process of bringing some, you know, pretty interesting, I think they're interesting <laughs> Jewish characters into this narrative, that, um, that it didn't seem like a sort of two-dimensional sort of way to compare, you know, the, the, the Shoah to the, you know, genocide here, but rather that it was, it had dimension, it had reality, it, it, that, it, that was based in reality, even though it was, it's a totally surrealist kind of construct, and, and that there's, ways again to go back to it being recognizable that people can see maybe some reflection of themselves so um that was really yeah that was really important to me and yeah i i, I won't delve into all the different ways the aspects of like life in life at the bagel store in new york <laughs> you know like uh <laughs> shaped certain certain lines but sure there absolutely are some and 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 to some degree i i i do think that that's something that a lot of folks writing fictional narratives do like if there's a line that you hear you're like oh my goodness i gotta hang on to that and i gotta put that into a work of fiction you know you, because because it has a lot of resonance at the time you know like the line don't look directly at the chef i mean that's taken right out of lived experience in totally different context you know when you when you see that line in the book but you know it's it's a <laughs> it's but that I guess if it has that resonance for me, hopefully it has that kind of dimension for readers as well. What's that? There's another famous line of writing advice, right? No, no joy for the author, no joy for the reader, no tears for the author, no tears for the reader. So it's like, you got to feel it. You got to feel that dimensionality. And, and, and hopefully if you can feel it as a person making the narrative, um, hopefully that comes through. You, know. you mentioned you're working on your next novel already. I, I assume it's not a sequel. There, there's, I don't think there's going to be a sequel where we see Tallulah comes back after a two-week vacation <laughs> and then she goes back to work. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but there is another book I'm working on. It's uh, it's also a work of indigenous futurism. It's set here in, in Portland, Oregon in the 2090s, Indigenous People's Day weekend 2091. How I think about the differences between this book, which is tentatively titled Minister, and Riding the Trail of Tears is that Riding the Trail of Tears is kind of like the um, Cherokee removal, um, like super dub, right? There's so much delay, so much echo and reverb that sometimes it's hard to tell where the downbeat is, right? <laughs> it's like, is that a downbeat or is it just an echo, right? I, I, I'm not sure. Um, with this book, in terms of the narrative structure, there's very little delay, right? Um, it's it's When there is a bit of delay, it's like, it's going to be evident. Um, 
and yet it's also I think there's also a lot of um, sort of levels of of narration and and narrative irony that are happening. So it's it's similar that way. Um, it's kind of like the protagonist. It's a first person narrative, but the protagonist is telling it about himself in the third person as it's happening, which is this interesting thing, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, yeah. So it's set in the 2090s. And I know that I'm going to get the technology wrong, you know, so I'm trying to avoid it being too technological or at least too technologically oriented and really focusing more on the narrative. There's there's a lot of emphasis on nostalgia <laughs> and our, our protagonist is sort of nostalgizing himself throughout. There is a moment where the protagonist realizes maybe this is actually isn't my story. Maybe I'm not the protagonist in my own story. Um, maybe it is this. Cherokee person who's <laughs> engaging this narrative with me. Um, you could certainly file it under indigenous futurism, you know, it's, it's, uh, but, but, but it's going to be, it's a different thing. And um, it's, uh, though it is similar. I think that in that I realized every work of fiction that I write, whether it's a two page flash fiction or whether it's a, 400 page novel and this one's going to be a, probably about half the size i want it to be able to fit into your back pocket if, if you get on a train you know um it, it is is that the main character has a has an awkward relationship with their job <laughs> and and something about em, employment and occupation and the relationship between occupation and an occupation that one has and how your occupation sort of occupies your consciousness and how that relates to <laughs> different levels of what it is to be um someone who engages the economy around them you know and, and um and so that's that's part of it um i can't I, i'll say this i don't want to give away too much but i'll say like in this future world our, our protagonist works for the oregon health authority um initially i thought it would that that they would work for um, like the federal government. But after the pandemic, I'm realizing, no, this is like a localized thing. It's, it's not the federal government. <laughs> uh, so he works with the Oregon Health Authority in this world where, um, yeah, there there is sleep regulation because uh, getting eight hours of sleep a night is help makes everyone healthier. It, it, it helps us to process the, the pollution around us, basically. And, and um, that's what our that's what our protagonist does is knocks people out and wakes them up hel helps to enforce the sleep regulation uh, which is an interesting way to engage the economy and the whole idea of public health i guess um so i've been working on this book for a while and i used to never share the the construct with anybody i'm close enough to the end of, of the pro writing process where i'm like okay i'll tell people about the construct and i'll trust that like if someone lifts it it'll be a different story that they tell and that's fine whatever and but um but like that's it's it's a uh, it's it's different in terms of how it's remixing history, um, and in some ways I feel like 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 I ha I had to reckon with like if if I wanted to continue to write things as a from the perspective of a Cherokee author like I had to reckon with Cherokee narrative in the first book right and but th this this one is like okay I'm gonna it's something different. Um, there is a Cherokee character who is really central to everything. There's a lot of emphasis on, yeah, I think imagining tribal sovereignty in, you know, 70 years <laughs> or just under 70 years. Like, what, what does that look like um, 
And it's it's a real trip to, you know, read about chat GPT now and to like think about AI and to think, well, what where is this going? And no, knowing that I'm going to get it, get stuff wrong. I mean, I look at sci fi from like the 1950s, right? Everybody's got uh, hovercraft, hover cars, right? everything's hovering. And it's like it's like. Well, I don't see any hover cars. Or, and, and, and well, what was that? That was a reflection of, the, of muscle cars at the time. And people were like, well, what if the muscle cars just started flying? It, it, but it's, you know, I mean, Star Trek had the communicator. Like, I think I think that was the closest to anticipating the iPhone, right? It was the communicator in Star Trek. But, but like, you know, so I look at it now and I'm like, anything I try to imagine now is going to be like a hovercraft. It's going to be a reflection of where we are right now in the 2020s. And it's going to be different, you know, but there are some things in terms of nostalgia, like our protagonist, our protagonist wants to steer the car, right? Like nobody does that anymore in the 2090s, but our protagonist does. So, so really thinking about that, um, what does it mean to relate to the past and have nostalgia for the past and to like simultaneously like have fun with that and do it with love, but to also do it in this way that's like, you can tell that like everyone's kind of making fun of our protagonist for for um, for certain kinds of nostalgia, but you know, in terms of the narrative structure, that nostalgia's gotta it's it, it's gonna play a role. So um, yeah, and, and anyways, that's uh, it, it, I, I've I've actually rewritten this this manuscript. Like I'm afraid to take it out of the oven too soon, I guess, because I I've rewritten it like four times now. To, to change the point of view. It's it, the, the point of view has changed several times and I think it's, I've, I've got it now. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm close to being done. I think I might need about 10,000 more words and it'll be done. That was our interview with author Blake Hausman. If you haven't already, I'd encourage you to grab a copy of his book and give it a read. You can find more information about Blake and his literary work on the show notes page for our website. Check out earthtohumanspod.com. One of the things we've started doing since launching the new season of Earth to Humans is sharing relevant news articles or stories that have caught the attention of our team. Here's producer Hannah Mulvaney sharing a bit about the article that caught her attention this week. So around this time last year, I read um, Breeding Sweetgrass, um, which is a really, really incredible book, which I would really encourage anybody to read. Um, and then I just read another book called The Wilderness Cure, which is by Mo Wild, who is um, a British lady. And she um, is basically trying to live of wild food forage food and and kind of hunted food for a year but obviously that is in the UK um incredibly difficult <laughs> um it's a lot easier in other parts of the world but she lives on the um she lives in Scotland where like foraging seaweed and foraging um shellfish and things like that is a little bit easier um and what's really interesting is that um as somebody that works in social media and communications what i've seen over the past few years has been a real rise in people foraging um and what I have found really interesting um about that is that there are it's being done 
um, it's for most part, I'm not talking about general, I'm not going to generalize on this, but for most part, it's being done in a really capitalist way rather than a very um, sustainable, um, like food sovereignty way. And so wild garlic just comes at this time of year. It's just everywhere. And um, it's just like you can go and collect it. But unfortunately, because the amount of green space in the UK is so small, there's just been this like massive amount of people just tearing up the wild garlic, tearing up all the mushrooms and things like this. And lots of organisations like the National Trust and the Wildlife Trust are like, people need to like, because people aren't sticking to the paths, they're taking too much. It's being like really unsustainably harvested. Um, and I was just reading this article and it's just this, I, like I, I just had this facepalm moment of like, they're just being this like lack of respect for nature that something that historically has really connected us to nature and 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 brings out that um like real reciprocity in most people as is always referenced in the wilderness cure um it's just being done in this really harmful way where people are trampling wildlife habitats and over harvesting um, and it was just this moment of like, oh, like just re- real frustration for me. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to share that because it was just a really, a really interesting thing of like, can connection to nature, can us as conservationists and people that want to connect people to nature, go, can that go really, really horribly wrong? And I think in this case, it seems like it it is doing. So mm, just a reflection on that, really. Yeah. And it probably, you know, always starts out with the best of intentions, right? Like people that are excited about it, you know, the possibility of connecting with their landscape and connecting to their food in that way. And so it kind of comes back to like, where we to tell people that they can't do that? But, you know, there's got to be a happy medium where we're protecting these areas. But that's a super interesting article, Hannah. Thanks for thanks for that. And the only thing that I brought to the table, and it's not an article, but it's just kind of like a fact that I just learned, which I didn't know. And Matt, you probably do know about this because you worked with condors and you worked with birds a lot. Have you guys heard of the the term anting? Like ants, anting. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, it's this this phenomenon where birds of all different kinds. I I saw this about corvids and ravens, but it's apparently all different kinds of birds. They will intentionally lay down on top of ant hills and wait for the ants to crawl all over their feathers and body, releasing you know the alarm pheromone folic acid, which is an, a natural insecticide. And so now these birds have like covered themselves in like au natural insecticide intentionally. So not to like keep coming back to old episodes that we've done, but One Pagan and I talked about this in his about his book, um, Drunk Flies and Stone Dolphins, about drug use in the animal kingdom and like all the different ways. And I just thought this was like such another cool example of the wacky wild ways that nature has found a way, you know, like to just do all these cool things. We talked in the, you know, about the book, how um, birds will pick up uh, human cigarette butts because tobacco is a natural insecticide and they preferentially use that in their nests to help protect their young. 
And that's like something weird and crazy that they've adapted to, to our behavior about. But like anting to me, like laying down on an ant's nest and tent, like that's just, I don't know. I, I just learned about that and I thought it was really cool. You know what? I, I thought it was going to be similar to birding, you know, when you like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, do you know what? I was like, yeah, I actually did this the other night because I was sat in a restaurant and somebody had dropped a fry. And obviously this ant's nest was at the top of this column. And every time the waiter came over, I was like, just staring at this column, like at a different height. Like, can I help them? Like, can I help them? Like, oh, they work so hard, don't they? They're just like... <laughs> I think that still counts as anting. I think we can definitely call that anting. That's good. It's good, good. Yeah, everyone go out, go anting. You know, don't sue us if you get bit by a bunch of ants, but, you know. Thanks for listening, everyone. We've got a new episode coming up in two weeks. Serena will be interviewing Laura Briefer who is the director of the Salt Lake City um, Department of Public Utilities. So she's basically in charge of the water that goes in and out of Salt Lake City, which is a huge city that's growing and growing and growing. Um, But as many of you probably know, um, Salt Lake City, with all that growth, there's been a huge dry, dry up of Great Salt Lake. So this huge beautiful uh, migratory stopover it's super important ecologically for the area and also for people's drinking water is just disappearing at this hugely rapid rate and so I talked to Laura about the implications of the past you know four or five years of drought that we've had in the southwest and also this new um, brush of snowpack melt that is entering um, the landscape and, and sort of how she feels about people not getting too optimistic. Earth to Humans is a production of the Wildlands Collective. The show is hosted and produced by Serena Simons, Hannah Mulvaney, and me, Matt Podolsky. Music from this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website for a full list of credits, earthtohumanspod.com.